Welcome to Tibet Talks, a podcast series from the International Campaign for Tibet. You're about to hear the recording of a live conversation from September 22nd, 2021. We hope you enjoy the show. And uh, welcome to another episode of Tibet Talks. I'm Benji Gatso, and I'm pleased to be the moderator for this special session with our ICT leadership team. Uh, joining us today, we have uh, ICT leaders from Brussels, Berlin, and Washington to speak with you to answer questions on our work and issues related to Tibet. For our viewers, I'd like to offer just a brief background. ICT office in Washington, DC was set up in 1988 after the historic visit of His Holiness the Dalai Lama to Washington, DC in 1987, when he presented his five-point peace plan at the United States Congress. Guided by the vision of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, the ICT leadership had worked strategically and effectively for over three decades with elected leaders and citizens throughout the world to provide political and humanitarian support for Tibetans. ICT Europe was established in 1999 and ICT Germany in 2002. Uh, with that, joining us today to answer your questions and update you on ICT's work are our leaders from Washington DC, from Berlin and from Brussels. Welcome everyone. So um, uh, to begin, I'd just like to give a brief introduction for our viewers as audience. Many of them have seen your uh, faces and your names, but are not quite familiar with your background. So I'll begin with Pujuna. Pujuna is uh, interim president at ICT based in Washington, DC. He joined ICT in 1995. He has a background in journalism, and he previously worked as a reporter for the Daily Indian Express newspaper in New Delhi before joining the Central Tibetan Administration in Dharamsala, India in 1984. He has served in the Office of His Holiness the Dalai Lama in Dharamsala, as well as the Office of Tibet in Switzerland. Uh, he was a member of the Task Force on Negotiations set up by the CTA and a member of the team for talks with the Chinese leadership between 2002 and 2010. Uh, welcome, Pujna. Uh, actually, we were supposed to have Tsirin Chambala as our guest, but she could not join us as planned. Uh, Tsirin is usually based in Amsterdam and serves as executive director of ICT uh, Europe since its inception in 1999. But in our place, we are joined today by Vincent Metten. Vincent is EU policy director from our office in Brussels, uh, which was set up in September 2006 and aims to interact with European institutions. Vincent has been in Brussels with us since 2007. Previously, he has experience as national detached expert of the Belgian Ministry for Defence to the European Commission, as well as having worked as coordinator for security and defense issues at the Space Policy Unit and for the non-proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. Welcome, Vincent. Thank you very much. And lastly, we have Kai Müller from our Berlin office. Kai is based uh, there in Berlin and has been serving as executive director of ICT Germany since 2005. Before joining ICT, Kai served on the board of Amnesty International Germany and also worked as a research associate in the German parliament. Since 2015, he has also coordinated ICT's United Nations initiatives. The Kai is a trained jurist focusing on international law. Um, he holds a master's degree in political science, sociology and African studies. Apart from international advocacy, Kai has organized support for the Tibetan children's villages um, in India. So um, welcome uh, to Kai. And um, with that, for our viewers watching this live session, we'll be taking your questions uh, uh, for our speakers. Uh, so please post questions on the comment section of our Facebook live stream, or you can also email them to us 
at uh, comments at safetibet.org. Um, with that, I think we would like to begin uh, by asking each of you if you could give a brief uh, overview of the political climate for Tibet in your respective countries and uh, maybe also touch on some key actions or programs that your co-offices are currently working uh, on. And I'll begin, I'll turn it over to uh, Pujana first and then Vincent and then Kai, please, Pujana. Thank you very much, Tenshula, and thank you for this uh, opportunity for ICT as a whole to sort of inform the general public about what we do uh, in our different offices. Uh, as you said, uh, since 1988, uh, ICT, when it first began here in Washington, D.C., we had the fundamental objective of supporting the vision of His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, and of the Tibetan people. So that vision has been carried, been carried through through all these decades, and we continue to base ourselves on that. Uh, within that includes two broad objectives. One is to support uh, a political resolution to the Tibetan issue through dialogue, uh, which His Holiness and the Tibetan leadership uh, uh, would like to achieve. And secondly, to uh, in the meanwhile, to enable, to promote and protect the Tibetan people's cultural, religious, and uh, spiritual heritage uh, through different programmatic uh, support uh, that we get. Our support has been uh, overall through uh, the office of the Special Envoy of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, uh, which was led by Mr. Lodi Gary for many years. And uh, he was based here in Washington, D.C. in our office, and through that we were able to render that support in concrete terms. So we have been able, trying to achieve these objectives through a few uh, initiatives. One of the first of which is to institutionalize support for Tibet in the government. Uh, we started here in Washington, D.C. through uh, working with the United States Congress and the administration. And today we can say now that uh, fundamental American policies on Tibet are institutionalized in the form of different legislations. Secondly, uh, through programmatic support, uh, right since the late 80s until uh, now, and it continues every year, Congress uh, appropriates several million dollars for helping the Tibetan people, both in Tibet and in exile. And we as ICT look at that as one of our annual uh, work with the Congress to sort of encourage members of Congress to continue to support the Tibetan people in these prog programmatic uh, initiatives. Thirdly, uh, since late 90s, United States, and now even in Europe, has begun to have a sizable Tibetan population who have eventually achieved the, uh, uh, attained the citizenship of their countries. And we have been using that power of citizenship to encourage Tibetan empowerment here so that the Tibetan Americans can be part of the political process of the United States. This includes Tibetan youth leadership program. This includes Tibetan uh, lobby day. Uh, actually, uh, next week we will have uh, this year's lobby day, uh, although it will be virtual on September 28 and 29. And we already have had sizable uh, registrations from the different Tibetan associations and the Tibetan uh, uh, supporters here in the United States. Now, all these are aimed at having a policy, proactive policy by the Biden administration here. And that leads me to the political uh, status of the situation of Tibet uh, here in the United States currently. Currently, the Biden administration has through legislative mandates the obligation to uh, work on promoting dialogue for Tibet, has also uh, the legislative mandate to support the Tibetan people in different ways to encourage uh, their uh, religious freedom, spiritual uh, sort of, uh, heritage, and more importantly, through the most recent Tibetan Policy and Support Act to uh, ensure that on the issue of Tibetan religious freedom as it pertains to the issue of Tibetan rights to uh, selection of reincarnation process, 
the United States position that it is only His Holiness the Dalai Lama and the Tibetan Buddhist community who have the mandate and who have the authority. That has to be ensured by the United States. And our, uh, we are uh, currently working uh, with the Congress and with the administration to see that the Biden administration follows, follows up on these mandates as well as on the commitments made by then presidential candidate uh, Joe Biden in September of 2020, in which he said that uh, promoting uh, dialogue on Tibet will be one of his priorities and working with his holiness, the Dalai Lama, will be uh, part of that uh, priorities. So currently the Biden administration has a policy on China that says that will uh, be competitive when it should be, collaborative when it can be, and adversarially, adversarial when it must be. Now that within that uh, policy framework, we would like to see that the Biden administration be proactive on Tibet. And uh, right now there is no special coordinator for Tibet. Uh, issues who has been designated in the State Department. We hope that the Biden administration will do it soon. Uh, Pre President Biden himself has committed to appointing the special coordinator and we hope that once the spe special coordinator is in place, the Biden administration will be proactive in encouraging dialogue on Tibet. Thank you. Thank you, Pujala. Turn over to Vincent, please go ahead, Vincent. Thank you, Tenshu, and um, I'm happy to be with my colleagues here today in this discussion. Uh, I will give some, um, I, I will address the EU-China relation and how Tibet and human rights, uh, you know, the space given to our issue in this relationship um, with three remarks. The first one is that uh, uh, Europe here, it's not a monolithic block. There are 27 member states, they have different political sensitivities and approaches toward China. Uh, some countries are more sensitive to human rights, uh, for instance, the former communist countries of Eastern Europe, and this is certainly uh, allies for us. Um, we see also that some countries like Greece or Hungary have closer link to Beijing, essentially because of economic ties, and sometimes are blocking uh, EU statement at the Human Rights Council session. Um, so there is a lack of unity and coherency when it comes on sensitive issues um, in China, like Tibet, Hong Kong, Taiwan, or Xinjiang. Uh, China is also using a divide and rule strategy here. Uh, for instance, uh, you have a group that is called the 17 plus 1 cooperation group, which became recently the 16 plus 1 because Lithuania decided to exit this group. and. Uh, it's composed of some EU countries, not all of them, but I think it's not very useful for this uh, European unity. Uh, and also when there are tensions between China and uh, the EU, for instance, China is going to national capitals, uh, for instance, to invite ambassadors or diplomats Beijing, Beijing to visit Xinjiang or Tibet. That's my first point. The second point is that uh, Tibet is raised in bilateral relations, um, mostly in human rights or political dialogues dialogues. Um, so in general, when a country has a human rights dialogue with China, uh, which is the case for some of them, it's a, a few of them like Germany, the Netherlands, the EU, but also Switzerland and the UK for Europe, um, Tibet is normally always on the agenda, including uh, between when you have EU-China human rights dialogue, um, um, you have some individual cases of prisoners that are raised, including Tibetan cases um, that we also contribute to, um, for instance. Um, when uh, sometimes the problem is that some European countries are hiding behind this uh, EU-China dialogue, not to raise human rights, saying, oh, there is a EU-China dialogue so on human rights, so that's where issues are discussed. And so that's a little bit unfortunate. It should be also raised at the bilateral uh, level. Um, in some countries, you also have human rights ambassadors, like in France, in Germany, in the Netherlands, in the EU, uh, which is a good thing. I think it should be expanded also. Um, in the EU, for instance, this role is um, devoted or fulfilled by the Special Representative for Human Rights, who is uh, Mr. Gilmore. His predecessor, Mr. Lambredini, has been to Tibet in 2013, and we have also contributed in terms of briefing and information before uh, the visit. And we hope that the current uh, high representative, special representative will also pay a visit there. Um, and my third point for this introductory uh, remarks is that 
parliaments uh, in the national countries, but also at the EU level, is, are playing a very important role on human rights. Uh, in the front line, they are uh, you know, more outspoken than governments when it comes to human rights, or Tibet. Uh, and there are also in some countries um, so-called Tibet intergroup, so platforms of discussion with members from different political parties who discuss Tibet or take action, like in Czech Republic, that's the biggest group with more than 50 members, the three Baltic countries also, France, Germany, Italy, Sweden, and three countries outside the EU, uh, Switzerland, UK, and Scotland. There is also uh, the Tibet intergroup in the European Parliament, who plays an important role. And I would say that in Brussels, uh, the Parliament of the European Union is uh, very important because it adopts, um, I mean, sometimes a report or a resolution on China and human rights issue or on Tibet. And this year, let me quote that there have been uh, a resolution on Hong Kong after the implementation of the national security law. And also, um, recently, there has been a new report on uh, EU-China strategy. And this report, which has been issued a few weeks uh, ago, uh, a few days ago, I would even say, um, denounces the coercive labor programs in Tibet and also Chinese interferences in the selection of religious leaders. So that's an important message towards other EU institutions and towards China. And this report also says that the EU-China agreement on investment will not be implemented until Chinese sanctions on European officials are lifted. Uh, and these sanctions, uh, who target also members of the European Parliament, uh, are a reaction to the EU sanctions that were adopted against four Chinese leaders, uh, officials, because of their role in the repression against Uyghurs. Um, so I would say that uh, today the EU is less naive than it used to be in the past. Um, China is simultaneously depicted as a cooperation partner, but also as an economic competitor and as a systemic rival. And this is a new expression, I think, um, that has irritated very much Beijing. Um, so this gives you an overview of where we are, and I'm happy to answer questions later on. Thank you. Thank you very much, Vincent, for that update. And then I'll turn over to Kai, please. Yeah, thank you very much, Tenshu, for being able to speak to you today, tonight. Uh, good evening from Berlin, uh, guten Abend from Berlin here in Germany. Very happy to speak to you. Um, uh, if we speak about Germany, uh, much of what my colleague Vincent uh, has been um, mentioning is also applicable, relevant. Um, and uh, my colleagues mentioned already a number of important issues and in that respect initiatives that ICT undertakes on that level. I would like to speak on a more general level about two things here. As Tensha already said, ICT Germany is particularly active at the United Nations level. It's probably not wrong to say the United Nations is not doing enough on human rights and particularly on that. But for ICT and for many others, the Human Rights Council in Geneva, for example, is one of the few international fora where we can make Tibetan voices heard, their stories and oftentimes really gruesome experiences. Just recently, four independent United Nations experts have raised serious concern with regard to the cases of two Tibetans, um, Rinchen Sotram and Go Shere Gyatso. Both are Buddhist monks and they have been in detention for more than a year now, while it is not really exactly clear where and why. Both have exposed themselves either in Chinese social media or through their writings, and it is clear that the authorities did not like what they saw and read. These cases are just the tip of the iceberg, and I'm afraid since independent information from Tibet rarely reaches the outside world. It is encouraging, therefore, that these UN experts, experts have taken up these cases, made them public, and put out some public requests towards the Chinese government to, uh, to request more information about the whereabouts, about the reasons for their detention. Uh, as said, this is just one, these are just two cases, one, uh, two cases of so many we hear. And this is exactly what we aim to achieve. We want to address human rights bodies independent expert at the United Nations level to take up these cases. Ultimately, of course, 
to reach a, a improvement in the situation of those who are detained or those who have disappeared. And what struck me recently in particular was the case of one Tibetan, a Tibetan businessman named Dorje Tashi, who is serving a life sentence in Lhasa. He got detained in 2008 and went through an ordeal of torture and ill treatment during his pre-trial detention. ICT got his testimony and we are now actively working towards uh, governments and human rights experts. So they raise his case with the Chinese government. Uh, as I said, I could talk about so many more Tibetans, women and men alike, young and old. It is, from my view and from our view, extremely important, therefore, to hold the Communist Party accountable for their violation of international law. And that's, that is, of course, relevant at the United Nations level. Because that's what's the reality on the ground. I feel that international law is an important point of reference, since also, as many of you uh, have also um, monitored, seen over the past years, months, uh, and so forth, um, what is the case? The CCP somewhat successfully misleads the international public in portraying Tibet in terms of what allegedly constitutes social and economic progress. To my personal concern, there's a lot of buy-in into this internationally. At the same time, it is oftentimes ignored that Tibetans have no access to justice, as there is no independent judiciary, courts are governed by the Communist Party, there's no independent media, no civil society, and there are no independent labor unions. And moreover, China has neither ratified the International Covenant on Civil Rights, nor conventions of the International Labor Organization, on forced labor and other essential instruments of human rights protection. So for me, the pivotal question is, can Tibetans seek legal redress against measures of the state, such as relocation measure, measures or against recruitment into so-called vocational training programs? Can they hope for independent investigations into allegations of torture, into arbitrary detentions? These kind of questions must be integral part of any assessment of state measures in Tibet. And this is what we are conveying in our United Nations related work in Geneva and in other places. Um, if I can just conclude as someone from, as someone speaking from Berlin as a German, and some may call this city a gateway to Eastern Europe. So I would like to recall the experience of life under authoritarian rule of the people who had lived under Soviet ideology in Eastern Europe. I feel that Western societies still lack understanding of what it means to be object of ideological transformation, of cultural assimilation, and far-reaching social projects of a one-party state. Many in Eastern Europe do understand, and it's quite logical, as uh, my colleague Vincent Matten mentioned, that there is a lot of support for Tibet in the Baltics, in Poland, and the Czech Republic, and other places. They do understand the paternalism of an authoritarian state and know what this means for the individual as it constitutes the exact opposite to self-determination. And this is what Tibet is about, self-determination of the people and of the individual. Perhaps a bit as a motivational closing here from my side, uh, as a German, I would dare to say that as with our country some 30 years ago, the winds of change may come quickly and unexpectedly. And it is an encouraging experience I like to share with our Tibetan friends and also with you out there. Thank you, and I'm happy to hear your questions. Thank you very much, Kai. Um, and thank you, all of you, you raised some uh, very important points there. So I'll go to our uh, audience uh, questions. We have also a number of questions that ICT uh, members have emailed to us. So I'll be going through the, those. And uh, for viewers watching, please do know we'll take your questions uh, that you post online here. So um, my colleagues are looking out for your questions. Um, first question I may direct to uh, Pujana. It, I think, follows up on uh, Kai's statement also about uh, the situation, uh, how it is for Tibetans inside uh, Tibet. Uh, Terry Baker, uh, this is a Facebook question from Terry. Um, she says, um, it seems that China continues to escalate their oppression of Tibetans 
and uh, all minorities in their country. Are there any movements within the country that are working for human rights or is China effectively suppressing all dissension? So maybe you could explain how the situation is for Tibetans. Unfortunately, the situation in Tibet is such that the very assertion of Tibetan identity itself is, uh, has become some sort of a, a criminal action. And therefore, there's very little space for Tibetans inside Tibet to assert uh, their rights. Uh, even uh, having said that, uh, in recent times, what we have seen is Tibetan people inside Tibet are using whatever options available for them to talk about their situation. Uh, we have been seeing that in the language advocacy rights, for example, where uh, the Tibetan people are uh, dissatisfied with the Chinese uh, authorities' imposition of uh, Mandarin as the dominant language of communication for uh, the Tibetan people. China's own rules guarantee that people like the Tibetans can and have the legal right to use and to learn their language and use their language as the first language of communication. Unfortunately, that's, that seems to be changing and therefore there is some effort. Other than that, than that, on the fundamental human rights issues, unfortunately, live alone being able to assert themselves, the Tibetans in Tibet are not even able to communicate, communicate these to the outside world. So unlike, for example, even in the case of the Uyghurs, where they're able to get information from uh, East Turkestan, as they call Xinjiang. Uh, from Tibet, if we can recall the self-immolations that took place, oftentimes we would get those information late uh, after days have passed. And that's because the Chinese authorities have clamped down heavily on the Tibetan people. Thank you, Pujana. And um, my next question I have for uh, Vincent, uh, this is also a question that came to us via email. It, uh, it says, the ICT and the Tibet movement have campaigned for the appointment of a EU special coordinator for Tibet over a decade, but we have not seen an outcome yet. Uh, what real commitments and messages are you getting from EU countries? Do we change tactics, or if so, what and how? This uh, message, this question comes from Tsirin Pasan from London. Um, indeed, and ICT was also among those who asked to have a special coordinator for Tibet in, in the past. We've been lobbying for that, but I, I, we a little bit um, uh, stopped doing so when uh, this a special representative for human rights was appointed because we saw that um, this person would be responsible for human rights worldwide and and we felt that there was no willingness on the, on the EU side and member states to appoint a special coordinator for Tibet anymore saying well you have this person he has the mandate for Tibetans for Uyghurs for uh, all the also ethnic groups in China so I think that's um, uh, this position is, is very important and as I mentioned in the introduction uh, Mr. Lambridinis uh, was the first uh, uh, co uh, special representative to visit Tibet in his official capacity. I think he did a, a, a good visit on the ground, but it was not followed by uh, very concrete outcomes, and it was not there was nothing concrete actions that uh, uh, was taken by the EU afterwards. So I think this is something um, that uh, should. I think the, the current um, special representative for human rights minister Gilmore should also uh, visit Tibet and ask to visit uh, access the, the region uh, and uh, um, this is also the position of the of the EU that there must be an access for uh, foreign uh, leaders and diplomats uh, to the region and so we invite him to also to to go there and and, and see what he can see with his eyes and also prepare correctly the, the visit I think that's an uh, important request from us. Uh, thank you, Vincent. Uh, now I have a question uh, for Kai. Kai, uh, this question is regarding the uh, COP26. Uh, and the question is, what is ICT doing regarding the upcoming COP26 climate conference in Glasgow and the issue of climate change in Tibet? And uh, jointly tagging on there, we have another question, a Facebook question. Uh, on that uh, same topic, asking um, what kind of 
joint collaborative efforts, lobby, activism do you see or recommend for Tibet support groups, NGOs, and the CTA uh, to take up uh, with regard to um, Tibetan environment and climate change? COP26 is, is of course a very, very relevant occasion for the international climate movement. And I, I would always suggest not to just merely look up at this very conference, COP26, which is the culmination of, of discussions, of discussion rounds, of meetings that have happened already before in this very context of the climate convention. So, um, actually what, uh, what should be considered is, is being of course, somewhat present at the COP26 as Tibet groups to, to raise our flags. But at the COP26, there's going to, there's not going to be a discussion about country specific issues. So this is an opportunity of, of, uh, raising the Tibetan flag, if you will, um, and to, to create connections to also create a, a more awareness about the Tibet. Uh, issue and, and the relevance of climate change, environmental problems uh, on the Tibetan plateau and also uh, beyond the Tibetan plateau and uh, in the Himalayan uh, area. So um, actually, um, instead of just merely looking at one spe specific conference where so many issues are going to be discussed and uh, in a very controversial uh, way they're going to be discussed, uh, the Tibet movement should look at a long-term strategy to address these issues and, and to find ways to, um, to educate the larger public from the Tibetan experience. And I'd say um, this is perhaps one of the most important um, things that the Tibet, issue ha uh, Tibet movement has to share uh, with the larger public the Tibetan experience with, for example, the lack of involvement of uh, local communities when it comes to so-called environmental or climate protection projects, um, in this case, implemented through the Chinese state, which uh, are anything but participatory, which are anything but inclusive, and which are anything but respective, uh, respectful for Tibetan rights. So. This, the Tibetan experience needs to be introduced into the international arena because it is an important experience, not just for, for Tibetans um, and their supporters, but also for uh, perhaps the region of Asia, but maybe also beyond. We're looking at what it means, actually, uh, what, 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 is the, what are feasible and effective ways to protect the climate. And this cannot be done without the really active involvement of local communities. With regard to uh, corporations, I would say um, it is important to look at also other stakeholders who, who are also suffering from climate change, but also stakeholders who are in a somewhat uh, similar situation. And uh, here again, I'm, I'm thinking of, of local communities, of uh, um, what others call so-called minority uh, situation and rights. We know Tibetans are not a minority uh, in their own country. And this is, this is uh, a strategic approach that should be sought. Just thinking beyond the Tibet world, making um, the case for Tibet by offering uh, added value for others. And I think it is indeed a valuable experience um, a negative experience as such when it comes to Tibetan rights and results on the plateau, but it is a valuable experience that can be shared. Absolutely. Thank you, um, Kai. Um, with that, I'll go to a question emailed from uh, one of our members in Netherlands. And the question is, uh, do you have any idea where the Benjen Lama Gindu Chögyinima might be? Unfortunately, we don't have any information. Uh, ICT was among the uh, first of uh, Tibetan advocacy organizations taking up the case of the Pension Lama when he was detained in 1995. And uh, 
we uh, were successful eventually in having some information given to the United Nations uh, about uh, the Panchalama. Uh, the Chinese have since been adopting the same sort of position, namely that he is fine, his family, and he doesn't want it to be disturbed. So uh, that is what the Chinese authorities have revealed so far. Uh, but uh, on the issue of the Panchalama, what is important is that uh, even under Chinese laws, uh, he is an adult and he can speak for himself. And if he or his family so desires to remain private, they should be free to say that uh, themselves rather than the Chinese communities trying to, Chinese uh, government trying to uh, speak on their behalf. And that makes us particularly live along the political aspect of it as religious followers, uh, us people who are, we are concerned whether he may still be living or not. Uh, so therefore, that is the situation on the Panchalama. Thank you, Pujana. And then um, next question, maybe Vincent, you could tackle it. Uh, it says it's regard uh, the recent disregard of Hong Kong's autonomy, which was guaranteed in the UK-China joint declaration, says, has attracted global attention. Overwhelming majorities of Hong Kong people are now announced keen to support, oppose the CCP regime. Uh, those who fled Hong Kong are regrouping in Western countries to fight back. Taiwan is believed to be the next target under President Xi Jinping's leadership. What opportunities do you see for the Tibet movement in forming a stronger, more well-coordinated alliance with other stakeholders, uh, including Chinese uh, overseas democracy advocates and dissidents? Um, That's a complicated question. Um, yeah. I, I think that there are, uh, in a way, we are all on the same boat. I mean, all the people from Hong Kong, um, in, in the Uyghurs, Tibetans, and uh, Chinese dissidents abroad are all want the same. It's to have a, a democratic country where they can, you know, travel uh, safely, where they can express themselves, where they can gather, and so on. So I think it's uh, we have all the same objectives to fight and to you know, uh, the Chinese uh, communist regime rules policies. Um, so, uh, of course, uh, we also have then uh, different sensibility, different approaches. I mean, uh, Tibet movement and uh, all goals have the same goals, but have different ways to do it. There are local specificities. But of course, we, we when we can, when there should be alliance and coalition, and this is something we are doing in, in Brussels, with the Uyghurs and with the Taiwanese also, uh, when we can, and representative of Hong Kong as well, we do joint protest um, on a regular basis when there are, um, you know, China summits or important uh, anniversaries. So we, we always have um, been reaching out to each other uh, to, to join forces. And I think that when we are together, we are, uh, our messages are, are stronger also. Um, and uh, when I was in, in, in Taiwan also, I saw there was a lot of support for Tibet there, a lot of uh, uh, people that were sensitive to what is happening for Tibetan people. Of course, they are in a difficult situation now with uh, a Chinese leadership looking and Xi Jinping looking at the island also um, uh, and trying to re reunite it with uh, mainland China. So it's a very serious concerns also. And uh, uh, so I hope it will not uh, escalate and that uh, Beijing will, you know, not um, uh, go too far there. But I think that the answer is yes, we have to, to be together and, and unite when, when possible. Uh, Kai, would you like to add anything? Yeah, I would just like to resonate and underscore what Vincent uh, has just mentioned. I think my experience over the past uh, three or four years uh, has been as such that there has been more cooperation with uh, Hong Kong activists, with Uyghurs, with others uh, who are really affected by this more assertive, more, more aggressive uh, CCP policies in, in the People's Republic. And uh, I find that quite encouraging, actually, because uh, more, more often there's common ground, despite differences. Of course, the situations are different, but I think um, there is a more, it's a greater awareness. And this also resonates with civil society, for example, here in Germany, which has been more alert uh, in terms of CCP influence operations, if you will, in, in a whole 
array of, of areas um, in education, uh, academia, in media, in, uh, in business, in, in uh, newspapers and so forth. So um, there's, there's more, much more public interest. Of course, this is a result of a more aggressive uh, diplomacy of the CCP here in, in the West, but also of uh, civil society um, activism. And I'm, I'm really quite encouraged by the fact that also we as a part of the Tibetan movement are playing a, a role in this and we always try to to uh, support and uh, wherever we can such such initiatives and I'm quite glad about this. Tagging on to your uh, comments there Kai, how can the Tibetan uh, movement be more coordinated in tackling this? We have another question on um, uh, a member from uh, Netherlands asking about uh, writing opinion pieces for newspapers and letters to editors and she says, um, he says um, that uh, the general Dutch audience knows very little about the situation for Tibetans in Tibet and, and that Tibet is occupied and a colonized country and what can be done? So maybe you could address that as well, Kai. Yes, it's of course a very important uh, question. I, I think in, in times of, of social media and, and the internet, I think it's, it's one one logical step to to, um, to to express views or to to sort of inform or, or forward information about events development in Tibet on, the, on that channel. But I understand not everybody prefers uh, being around on in social media. So uh, newspapers still play an important role in our public uh, public awareness um, building. So. Um, I'd say it's, it's always worthwhile to, to approach newspapers because they live also from, um, from uh, readers' interaction. So anyway, uh, just regardless, what, what is an a viable avenue for just the normal person on the street or whoever who is interested, um, it should be pursued. I would encourage everybody to, to reach out to stakeholders that are within their reach, so to speak. So um, uh, I'd say it is a, a um, with regard to information about what is, is, uh, what is known about Tibet, it is in fact a serious problem because we do have the information lockdown from Tibet. Um, that means no independent reporting uh, can take place uh, from Tibet. Uh, if it, if people, if journalists or diplomats and whoever can can enter the uh, the TAR, for example, Tibet Autonomous Region, it's it's a scripted tour, and nobody is able to speak freely. That is not unfettered access. Uh, needs to needs to be clear. At the same time, the Chinese government is is uh, has really beefed up its uh, its uh, propaganda machinery. Uh, they really switched it up a notch. If, you, if one can put it like that, and they're trying um, really in a strategic way to to uh, influence the larger public here. And we know that particularly Tibet is relevant to them because they uh, they uh, are very um, yeah very frequently they um, represent uh, Tibet or represent Tibet as a success story in terms of social economic development. Those look may uh, may uh, may uh, give a different image and picture of what is actually going on on the ground. But um, we find that it's a danger for the larger public, uh, the information, uh, the influence operation of the CCP here in the West. But again, as more, more awareness here in the West about what is going on, we as ICT uh, here in Germany and also I think in, in Belgium and in, uh, in France, have been um, have been writing to newspapers whenever there was a so-called advertorial which has been placed uh, by the Communist Party in some respected newspapers. This happens more often, unfortunately, but we find that um, public pressure helps and that some newspapers, media and information channels here in the West um, are uh, becoming more aware of the issues. 
that are that are connected to to such uh, advertorials to such information spreading. Thank you, Kai. And then with that, we have another issue coming up, um, and this question is about the uh, Beijing Olympics. So he said uh, the question is. Around the time of 2008 Beijing Olympics, the Chinese government imposed a major crackdown in Tibet. With the Olympics returning to Beijing in a few months, do, do we need to worry about another crackdown? Also, how can we use the Olympics to pressure the Chinese government to stop its repression in Tibet? Um, maybe Pujunai, you could take that? Yeah, I think that our experience shows that the Chinese government will take every and any opportunity they can to uh, strengthen their control over the Tibetan people. Uh, so uh, as we speak, uh, there have been detentions in uh, eastern Tibet uh, where an ICT had uh, issued a statement about our concern at those detentions and how these may be part of China's own uh, longer strategy to sinicize the uh, Tibetan people. Uh, so that the very identity of the Tibetan uh, people no longer uh, is there. So in terms of the Olympics, uh, which is coming up in a couple of months now, uh, we feel that the Chinese authorities are using the Olympics as a way to show a glorified uh, image of China. And we don't want the international community to accept that without questioning China's uh, abuse in Tibet. And that is the uh, position we have. Uh, whether or not they may crack down on Tibet uh, prior to the Olympics, it's less likely that they'll do it because of the Olympics, but it could be more uh, to fulfill their long-term strategy. Thank you, Pujana. Uh, next question, maybe I pass to uh, Vincent. Vincent, the question is, uh, last year, the United States passed the Tibet Policy and Support Act stating only the Dalai Lama and Tibet Buddhist community can decide on his succession. European leaders have expressed similar beliefs. What more can be done to protect His Holiness's succession from China's uh, interference? And in uh, connection with that, uh, it also there's another question that says, do you think EU leaders will push for similar law such as the United States Tibetan Policy and Act? that also speaks to the succession of the Dalai Lama. Is this a focus for ICT offices in Europe? And what can the public do to support it? So maybe Kai, you can add in also after Vincent. Thank you. Um, I, it's an important, it's a key issue, of course, for the future of, of Tibet. Uh, we have been working ICT or our office to really have um, to push um, member states and governments to take a public stand on it, saying, uh, you know, uh, that it's important that Tibetans uh, themselves, the Buddhist community and his holiness, decide the future of uh, succession of, of leaders, of religious leaders. So far in Europe, there have been several governments who have uh, taken such a stand as uh, in Germany, in Belgium, the Netherlands, and also in the EU. The High Representative Mr. Borrell uh, answered to a parliamentarian question where he said it's up to uh, Tibetan commun uh, Buddhist uh, community to decide uh, about their future leaders, uh, but it's a, it's only I would say uh, a reaction to a question. I think it would be very important that there should be a, a statement on behalf of all member states uh, saying the same. So um, that's very I think so. There is still way to go and and more to be done by the EU member states. Um, uh, can there be a law uh, in Europe? I mean, the, the, the way EU function is very different uh, than in the US with all these aggregated member states. So um, I don't think we can have a law as such, but I think we should have certainly statements, proactive statements. And also, I mean, we could think about there is an EU now a sanctuary regime for violation of human rights or human rights serious abuses. Uh, this could be also um, the position of ICT is to be used in case of interferences against uh, the succession of His Holiness. Um, I don't think that today uh, it will be used as such, but if in the future serious things develop, I think this should be considered by the EU. Uh, on the, just a remark on the Olympics that you raised before, the European Parliament has also made a clear stand that the EU leaders and national leaders should decline 
invitation to attend the Winter Olympics in uh, in Beijing uh, until there is progress of human rights in the countries in Hong Kong. Uh, so. I think that uh, uh, we uh, applaud this uh, official position by European Parliament, which is not yet the position of the EU, who is assessing the situation. Thank you. Thank you, Vincent. Um, I have a next uh, question for Bouchelin. We'll check in with Kai afterwards. Uh, Bouchelin, this is a question um, is from uh, London, Tiring Pasan, and it says, uh, Western allies led by US are getting closer and closer to confronting China. The quadrilateral security dialogue um, between the Quad between the US, China, India, Japan, Australia is seen as a major strategic development to contain confront China in the Indo-Pacific region. And the August nuclear submarine deal with Australia, UK, and US is another recent example seen as complementing uh, the Quad. And at a time when the CTA in Dharamsala is seeking dialogue with the central lead, uh, leadership in Beijing, with the goal of achieving genuine autonomy for the Tibetan people, how do you read this new development vis-a-vis -vis Tibet? And um, is this something the Tibetan movement can take advantage of uh, in this uh, emerging situations? So maybe you could uh, speak to that. Whether it's the Quad or the latest AUKUS, one thing we have to bear in mind that this is part of the broader, uh, at least from our perspective here in Washington, D.C., the broader Biden administration effort that I outlined earlier uh, to uh, challenge China's assertiveness. Mm -hmm. uh, so where they, there is uh, opportunity of collaboration between uh, like-minded countries towards achieving certain objective, the Biden administration is working with other countries, and we look at that. And so from the Tibet perspective, uh, the Tibetan Policy and Support Act also mandates the United States administration to reach out to like-minded countries and work with them uh, to take up the Tibetan issue in a joint way. And we feel that whether it's uh, Quad or AUKUS, whatever it is, uh, the United States can uh, proactively take up the uh, Tibetan issue. But uh, I should also he emphasize here uh, the fact that the Tibetan leadership has from day one said that they don't want a third party, third party interference in the dialogue process. Dialogue process can be encouraged, but eventually uh, it is between the Tibetans and the Chinese that the issue has to be resolved. Thank you, Bujra. Okay, I think uh, we have you back online. Could you address uh, the earlier question about uh, do you think EU leaders will push for similar laws as the, as the Tibet Policy and Support Act? And is this a focus also for your office? Yes, thank you. I think one, one major difference between the US and Europe, and for example, if you look at member states of EU, Germany, for example, is the fact that uh, the Europeans are shying away by and large. There has been a development this year at the EU level, of course, but the EU has been shying away from taking consequences from, from uh, human rights violations, from policy issues um, of, uh, of... We have some uh, connection issues there. When we get him back, we can turn to um, our next question in the meantime from um, Julie Beer from California. And the question is, uh, is Nepal still blocking the border to Tibetans? And uh, maybe an update on uh, Tibet situation for Tibetans in Nepal. Um, could I turn to you, Bujuma? Yeah, on the situation of Tibetans in Nepal and Nepal's uh, policy on the Tibetan refugees that come out of Tibet. Uh, unfortunately, uh, since 2008, uh, the annual flow of refugees from Tibet through Nepal to India has dwindled. And uh, we learned that just uh, this year, there are hardly less than six or seven uh, Tibetans who have uh, been able to uh, come out, escape through uh, Tibet through Nepal. That's firstly because the Chinese authorities have imposed stringent border security control measures. Uh, secondly, because uh, they have uh, been pressuring Nepal 
to uh, not to entertain Tibetans who come uh, out of Tibet. And in, there have been cases in the past when there have been refoulement of Tibetans uh, uh, by Nepal. So uh, that is the situation in terms of Tibetans coming out of Nepal. But even without Tibetans coming out of uh, from Tibet to Nepal, there are maybe uh, a couple thousand Tibetans still living in Nepal who have challenges. The Nepalese authorities had have at one time tried to provide them registrations, which would enable them to uh, live a wholesome life as refugees, earning their livelihood, having education, being able to work wherever they want. Unfortunately, the Nepalese authorities stopped doing so in the last several years. Therefore, Tibetans in Nepal face this situation where they, are, they don't have any documents that uh, can enable to lead, uh, lead a normal life, even though many of them have been born and brought up in Nepal. So that is the current situation of Tibetan uh, Nepal. And we have always been trying to sort of encourage the Nepalese government to look at the Tibetan people from a humanitarian perspective, including the fact that there has been a historical relationship between Tibetans and Nep Nepalese that should uh, encourage Nepal to sort of uh, look symp sympathetically uh, at the Tibetan people. Very briefly, uh, one additional yes. remark is that uh, uh, ICT, with its partner FIDH, the International Federation for Human Rights, has um, uh, submitted a report on the situation of Tibetans in Nepal for the Universal Periodic Review of Nepal um, this year. And we were also just, um, you know, reflecting what Bochung said about the difficulty for. Tibetans in Nepal to leave there, the statues and so on. So we have a, a recent document on it also. If some of you or some of the uh, people watching us would like to get, we can provide it. I think we are running uh, at the end of our time. And uh, one last question we have um, from uh, Quick, uh, one of our members, um, a volunteer who usually comes to our office all the time. We miss seeing you, Greg. Uh, but the question from Greg is, how can members uh, be uh, more involved? He says, of course, I'm aware of Lobby Day, but otherwise, how can members or volunteers uh, be uh, more involved on Tibet? So maybe you could uh, address that. If I may, uh, I think that any and everything that an individual can do to spread awareness of the situation in Tibet and to see that uh, while the Tibetan people continue to face these human rights issues, whether it's through writing blogs, uh, social media outreach, addressing their members of uh, parliament, uh, wherever they are, and if the, you are in the United States to be part of our virtual lobby day next week when we will have a lobby day uh, outreach to members of Congress, these will be helpful uh, to the uh, Tibetan cause. Thank you, Bujuna. And uh, with that, uh, we are just about out of time. So um, I'll say thank you to everyone tuning in today. Uh, we hope you uh, enjoyed the conversation and learned uh, something. I feel really uh, uh, grateful and lucky to be working with um, wise and wonderful human beings <laughs> at our leadership at uh, ICT. And I Thank uh, all three of you for joining us today. And I'm sorry we missed Sunla, uh, but uh, that would have been nice to have her as well. And we lost Kai at the last minute, but thank you, Kai, as well. Um, and uh, we'll say we'll be uh, tuning off now. We'll be back next month uh, with another episode of Tibet Talks uh, on Thursday, October 14th. Uh, we'll be discussing the passage of the passage and impact of the 1991 immigration bill that brought a thousand Tibetan refugees to the United States. Uh, it should be an interesting conversation as we'll have uh, guests who are some of the initial Tibetans who came as part of that program, uh, as well as some of those who worked on that project. Um, uh, don't forget, everyone, we have past Tibet Talks archived on ICT's uh, YouTube channel and also available on podcast. You can visit safetibet.org slash live to learn more. And also don't, don't forget to join our mailing list for alerts. 
thank you, finally, for your interest, dedication, and support for Tibet. Uh, the more people care about Tibet, the bigger the impact uh, we can have. Um, with that, until next time, please stay safe and well, and uh, we'll be looking forward to see you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tibet Talks. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Learn more at savetibet.org pod. To find out how you can get involved in our efforts to promote human rights and democratic freedoms for the people of Tibet, please visit savetibet.org support. Thank you and see you next time on Tibet Talks.